So uh, last week, today, and, and next week, we're doing an Easter series, and we're um, focusing um, this, this year, our, our theme for our Easter time of teaching is around the kingdom, the concept of the kingdom, and um, what the establishment of God's kingdom is. Last week, we looked at the way that, um, uh, that Jesus sets up his kingdom in Matthew 16, how he talks about he's going to establish his church before there is ever such a thing as a church. Um, you know, Pentecost has, is far from happening at that point. Um, when it comes to our ideas of church, the disciples have no clue what he's talking about, but they have every clue what an ecclesia is. They, they understand that. It's this idea that Jesus is going to invest his authority in the relationships and that these relationships, he gives them authority to, to bind and to loose things, um, to make decisions about what God says and about how to live that out in their lives. And things like, like forgiveness and grace and goodness and mercy um, and seeking God's judgments upon themselves. Like, like th- these are all parts and, and ways of what it is that God would have us bind, bind and loose. I ended last week's teaching um, talking a lot about binding and loosing and then uh, told you that the obvious question is going to be, um, all right, so I need to be binding and loosing things. What am I supposed to bind and loose? I told you to come back this week and we would talk about what that is. So, that's what we're going to talk about today. Um, we're going to talk about it. I'm going to, I'm going to uh, uh, offer a story first and talk about how Jesus thinks about binding and loosing himself. And then we're going to go to where it is that Jesus, I think, actually gives us the, the nuts and bolts about what it means for us to be about his kingdom, to be about making decisions, being empowered by him, walking in the authority of the Holy Spirit and the word of God, um, walking in intimacy with Christ in such a way that you and I can live our lives day in and day out in transformational ways that change yourself, that change the world around you, that change the people around you, that that your environment is shifted, where it's not that I'm a child of God who's stuck in this container where sin and and darkness and, you know, I just got to sort of make it until God pulls me out of here. No, you were not saved to sit. Um, You were saved to be transformative. You, you were saved to be someone who lives in the beauty and the goodness of God right now. When Jesus prays, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, that is a now statement. That is present tense. Like you and I can walk in the power that is the power of God. And um, we're going to talk about all, all that today, um, Matthew 21. Um, 21 verse 1. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put, put, them, put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Let's pray. God, open our eyes today to, uh, to your government, to your kingdom, to what it means for us to be part of your kingdom. God, we desire to, to know you and to walk with you in such a way that you are ruling supreme, 
that you are over us as individuals, that you are over our families, that you are over our friendships, that you are over our marriages, that you are over our children, that you are over uh, our workplaces. God, we want your kingdom in these places, your rule, your reign supreme. So um, teach us what it means to be people who, who live in your government, who know you in that way. Um, open each one of my brothers and sisters' eyes today, God, to, um, to the truth of your word, to the power of your Holy Spirit. Um, lead us to change, Father, as you show to us what it is you would have us to be. In Jesus' name, amen. So just as a quick parallel, Matthew 16, I taught from last week, um, Jesus starts some of that teaching about his government, about his kingdom, by saying, who do you say that I am? And Peter speaks up, and Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Right? Good stuff. Jesus says, you're right, Peter. On this rock, on this confession that you've made, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The government of hell will not be able to come against this. Right? What did Jesus say? Who, is, who, who do people say that I am? Who am I to them? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Look at the last two verses that we just read. Big difference, huh? When he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, Who is this? And what's the collective answer? Oh, he's a prophet. He's a prophet. Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. That's a major shift, right? That's a, that's a far cry from saying Messiah. He's a prophet. You know, he's somebody that's declaring that the Messiah is going to come. That's what prophets have done for Israel all these years is prophesied to the coming of the Messiah. And this is what the Messiah's kingdom will look like. Right? The, the word that Peter speaks about who Jesus is is vastly different from what the crowds believe that Jesus is. It's interesting. One thing that we always say at this time of the year is the same people that call, him, that call Hosanna and that want to crown him king on Sunday are the same people who want to crucify him on Friday. Except that they didn't understand what was happening. When Jesus says, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. It, it's not a statement of hyperbole. It's not like, a, like, like they didn't know what they were doing. They were not in their hearts, in their spirits, aware of who Jesus was. They were not confessing his lordship. Right? They were not engaging who he was. Um, they, they got it wrong. They got it wrong. Now, it was very right for them to want to make him king, though. I mean, the fact that they stumbled upon it, like, good for them. You know, well done. Sometimes ignorance is bliss. Um, Jesus is really the focal point here. We tend to make the crowds the focal point in the triumphal entry, but the, because, like, the crowds, they acted like this, and then they reacted like this on Friday. No, 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 no. Jesus is the focal point, and it's easy to miss it unless you transport. Let's go back to the first century again together, okay? Um, when a, uh, so armies fought a lot. You know, like, like medieval history, ancient history is one of continual warfare, right? And on a much smaller scale than we engage it, much smaller scale than we engage it. So that like taking a city could topple a nation. So when Rome would decide, when Rome decided, well, we want to conquer a city, Rome would go and they would lay siege to that city. And that city would fall, right? I mean, Rome was a juggernaut, like they couldn't be stopped. And, and Rome would fall. When or I'm sorry, the city would fall. When Rome conquered a city, Rome would then enact its government upon that city, right? Rome would say how this city did run, it's no longer going to run like that. 
and now it's going to run according to the Roman government. And we're going to show you right off the bat what that looks like. Parades were invented a long, long time ago. And the way that Rome would enter into a city would be on a war horse. Right? And so you would put the conquering general or the regional commander, or if it was a really, really, really important city, the king himself, Caesar, on a war horse and send him into the city. And the army would follow behind him, which would show that whatever was happening here, I am a king of war. I have conquered you in war. And if you folks rise up, this is your judgment. This is what's going to happen to you. Right? Greece was not so. Right? Greek empire prior to the Roman empire. Greece was a powerful army, especially during, under Alexander the Great. I mean, he was one of the greatest military leaders that, that, that ever lived, and he conquered vast amounts of territory. And wherever Alexander went, he would, he would surmise the situation, and, and the Greeks would surmise the situation. Like, if this city can run itself, if it can govern itself, like if it can engage its people healthily, if, if they're willing to rule themselves in a way that pays taxes, and if this city has beauty to it, like it, because the Greeks really engaged beauty, well, then one of two things would happen. If we want this city to be completely taken over by Greece, then we send our leader in on a war horse. But if we're going to let this city be transformed to become Greek in the way that it thinks, while keeping its people intact, then we send the leader in on a donkey. Because that's peace. So we're not coming conquering. We are coming with a new rule. We are coming with a new culture. We are coming with a new way of doing things. But it is not what it was. But we're not coming in here looking to slaughter everybody and put a bunch of Romans in the city and start over. When Jesus chooses a donkey, it is on purpose. It's not that he didn't have access to a magnificent horse. I mean, he did something pretty crazy there, right? He could have just as easily said, hey, there's a horse tied in a stable. Go tell the person I need it, and they give it to you, which is just crazy. I want to meet that guy, um, you know, who, who gave Jesus his donkey or who gave the disciples the donkey. Jesus said he needs this. Yeah. Right, you know, and then you find your donkey at the pawn shop um, in Lebanon, you know, and and the desi- and this, you know the disciples down at Wolfers kicking back a few, um, you know. When Jesus enters on a donkey, it's for real. Right? He's making a statement. He's saying something. He is saying, "My government is a government of peace." What's Jesus' name? Prince of peace, right? And peace is the Hebrew word shalom. Right? Shalom doesn't mean loss of war or absence of war. Shalom means wholeness. Shalom means rest. I am a prince of shalom. My rule is shalom. My heart as a king is for your wholeness. The city that I rule is with an eye toward wholeness, goodness, when I come, I absolutely come conquering. Right? But I come conquering sin, death, and the grave. I come offering you new life. So come and live under my rule. Come and be a part of this kingdom of light. That's what Palm Sunday is about. The whole, the whole point of Palm Sunday is that Jesus entered on a donkey, not on a war horse. He makes a, a blatant statement here, and the crowds miss who he is. I would be so interested to know how the crowds would have responded if he had come in on a war horse and if he had gotten like 12 other war horses and, and outfitted his disciples in armor and swords and spears and shields and stuff. I wonder what they would have said about him then if that was the case. Just interesting. 
Okay, so I told you last week, that, that's part one, all right? Jesus' government, when he, walks, when he goes into Jerusalem, it's a different kind of a thing. It's, it's completely foreign to what it is that these folks have experienced over the course of the last 400 or so years, right? which is enough for generations to have forgotten what it ever used to be like. And for them to understand that right now, this is how we live. Rome is oppressive. Rome is the kingdom on which we are under. They are destroying us. They want to kill us. We try and rise up in the Maccabean revolt, and they just beat us back down. You know, and we try and rise up again, and we just beat us back down. There's this crazy group of people called the Zealots, and they're trying to rise up, but nobody believed that they could do it any better either. You know, because Rome just simply had their foot on Israel's throat, and it wasn't a situation that was going to change in their minds. It was oppressive, and we just simply have to learn how to make it. The Jews hated Rome. They hated these people. And the Romans, frankly, did everything that they could to keep them subjugated and objectified. And on many, many levels, things were very, very rough in Israel during during the Roman rule. This is the situation that Jesus is stepping into. And this is the situation that Jesus comes to earth and says, the kingdom of God is is at hand. The kingdom of God is near you. In Luke 17, he says, when the kingdom of God has come, you won't say, oh, there it is. Or look, here it is. Because the kingdom of God is in your midst. It's here with you. It's among you. And he's speaking of himself. The kingdom of God has come. And the kingdom of God now dwells in and among the people of God. We are the people of God. The kingdom of God is here. The kingdom of God is in this room. The kingdom of God is at Freedom in Christ and at River of Life Church of God and at Calvary Chapel and at, at, at uh, you know, Cornwall UMC. The kingdom of God is, is at churches all across America and around the world. The kingdom of God is here, right? There's, there's people right now praying in, in Vietnam, two people, and Jesus is in their midst and the kingdom of God is there, right? And there's, there's Ukrainians who are terrified that their country is going to get taken over Right? And who want to keep their independence. And today they're praying that God protects them. And the kingdom of God is there. Right? And, there, and there's churches in Africa that can't, don't have you know, two pennies to rub together. And they're in their midst together with God. The kingdom of God is there. The kingdom of God is at hand. Right? It is in our midst. It is among us. So why don't we see it? Why don't we pick up on it? Why do we miss it? What is it that Jesus says about who he is and the kingdom of God is? that we, particularly a Western church, are looking to try and create when in actuality it's among us. Binding and loosing. What is it that Jesus would have us to bind and to loose? To get there, I again want to take, so keep that like Palm Sunday concept, Jesus on a donkey, like put that over there, but don't forget it. All right, new concept. Um, We're going to talk a lot about chiasms today, all right, chiasm. And as you can see on your handout there, we're going to talk about the Sermon on the Mount as a chiasm. Um, I want to explain chiasms to you. Justin's done some great teaching on chiasms before. And um, uh, a chiasm is a uh, a literary device. It's a way of speaking and writing in a teaching form. Um, The the people of God and and ancient cultures, I mean, you understand, like there was no printing press. There were no Barnes and Nobles. There was no Amazon. Like, the written word and the spoken word really, really mattered. It was very, very important. And the way you delivered it and the way that you spoke it and write it, it needs to be artful. Like, it, it, was, it was supposed to be beautiful. And they could understand whether or not it was situated in a way that was, that was beautiful. 
right? Chiasms are a way of artistically, of literarily, with a, an idea in mind of emphasizing the most important thing while structuring a thought process around it, right? A big thought process that's pushing itself to a certain point of, of emphasis that is meant to be most remembered and becomes the theme of the teaching that is then just paralleled all down through the text, right? Which is what we're going to talk about a lot today. We actually uh, can use chiasms. Dear Bill, the company is failing. Therefore, you are fired. If the company improves, sincerely, Frank. All right, this is Wikipedia. If you Wikipedia uh, um, chiasm, this is their example. All right, this is one of their first examples, which I just think is hilarious. Right, you can see it walk itself down. Right, here's A, here's B, C, B, A. And they parallel. Right? Sign, a greeting, a sign-off. The company is like this, the company could be like this, but this one stands on its own. So what's the point of the letter? You're fired. Right? There are some basic, chiasms are all over Scripture. Um, uh, the, the New Testament and Old Testament writers just love chiasm, um, and I can understand why. It, it brings together parallelism and imagery and metaphor all together in a beautiful working of words while still strongly and even better emphasizing the main point, the idea, the singular thought that is meant to stand on its own. Where the parallels are not is where the emphasis is. And the rest of the parallels work to strengthen that emphasis, which we'll talk about when we get to the Sermon on the Mount. You can see it um, pretty simply in another, I mean, all over the place, but here's an example, right, which is 1 John 2, 4 through 6 is also a chiasm. The Spirit of God in verse 2, the Spirit who was of God in verse 2, the Spirit not of God in verse 3, the big point, you are of God, your identity, sonship, right? Standing on its own, right? They're not of, they are of the world, right? Just like the spirit that not of God is of the world. We are of God, just like the spirit who is of God. The spirit of truth and the spirit of God are paralleled here in verses 2 and 6. But this is the point. This all strengthens this point, right? Whatever the tip of the arrow is, is where the emphasis is. That's what you're meant to remember. Chiasms are based on the, on, we get the word anyway, that we use for chiasm from the Greek letter chi, or key, right? You can see the X. You can see the X, right? You can see it walk itself down. There, there it is. You know what the first letter of the Greek word for Christ is? Yeah, it's a key, Christos. You can see it back here in Bill getting fired, you know? It's a nice chiasm, and it strengthens to the main point right here. I didn't want to go that far. Forget you saw that. Okay. All right. So go to the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5. The Sermon on the Mount is three chapters long. I'm not going to read the whole thing to you. But I do want to reference it according to this handout that you have here in front of you. Right? Um, so I'm not expecting you to be able to read those letters up on the screen. Um, but I will use it to, to, to notice some certain basic things. The Sermon on the Mount is a chiasm. When Jesus teaches the Sermon on the Mount, he is chiastically structuring it, which means he is looking to emphasize something. The question is, what is his emphasis? Where is his emphasis looking to land? 
The Sermon on the Mount starts off with Jesus ascending a mountain. That's A, right? In chapter 4, 25 through 5, 2, Jesus ascends the mountain, and he's surrounded by crowds. Right? So Jesus goes up on the mountain, supposedly, because that's a good place to talk from. You know, uh, like they don't have microphones and whatnot. So if you put a mountain behind you, then your voice only goes that way. You know, so people can listen. So Jesus would go up to the mountain. A teacher would sit down. The people would listen. And if you read the Sermon on the Mount, it doesn't take you that long to read it. I mean, 10, 15 minutes to read the Sermon on the Mount out loud. Um, I mean, Jesus completely changes the world with a 10 to 15 minute delivery of a sermon. Amazing stuff. I mean, really amazing stuff. Now remember, we're looking what it is that Jesus would have us bind and loose. What Jesus sets out to do in the Sermon on the Mount is give to the people of God, is give to his listeners what it means for them to be part of his government. Right? He is telling them what it means for them to be part of his kingdom. If you're going to be part of my kingdom, my kingdom looks like this. My kingdom works like this. Right? This is the government. If you were to ask Jesus, like, what's the law book for what it means to live in your kingdom? Right? The first seminal place that he would send you is the Sermon on the Mount. I mean, there are some other things he adds along the way, particularly through parables. But when it comes to the Sermon on the Mount, he begins by getting a little crazy, right? I mean, Jesus begins making these statements that don't make any sense. Go ahead and look at it, Matthew 5. We call them the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. There are probably some very poor people sitting there listening to him who are looking at themselves and who are like, seriously? <laughs> Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What's the kingdom of heaven consist of? Gold and pearls, right? And, I mean, they read Ezekiel, uh, purple and onyx and beauty and goodness, and they don't have uh, food to eat that night. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Right? Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. The whole point of mourning is that you're not comforted. That's how you know you're mourning. If you're comforted, then you're comforted. But if you're mourning, then you're mourning, and you feel really bad. Blessed are those who mourn, they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. No, they don't, right? I mean, like, that's not the testimony that natural humans would, would say. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Well, I'm hungering and thirsting for actual food right now, Jesus. Um, so hungering and thirsting for righteousness, great. But in the meantime, is there anything to fill my belly? Which is what they're oftentimes concerned with, which Jesus is not. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Do you know what would happen if you treated a Roman with mercy? You would be oppressed. Right? The whole idea of, this, of the Good Samaritan, like the Levite and the priest that walked by, that made sense to them. Like that's exactly what they would have done. Like here's a guy, here's my enemy, who has been come upon by thieves, walk past. You know, we're done with him. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom. Blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And Jesus starts his sermon with these thoughts. He starts his teaching with these ways. Hi, Lana. It's crazy. It is crazy that Jesus begins like this. Like if you want to turn people's ears off, start a sermon like this. 
he is he is this mystical like it's just it's a completely different way of thinking the kingdom of god is a completely different way of engaging your life across the board and that's where jesus goes right away right after it right so a jesus ascends the mountain surrounded by crowds b is the blessings of living in god's government when these things happen to you, then you're happy. In verse 13 to 20, Jesus really gets a bit interesting here, particularly in verse 20. You see, in verse 13, he starts off talking about salt and light and how you and I are called to be salt and light in the world around us. And then he says, don't think that I came to abolish the law and the prophets. I actually came to fulfill the law and the prophets. And so it's important for you to not just think that, like, that my kingdom is this thing that I'm setting up separate from who God is and how God has spoken in the past. No. No, the law and the prophets still have a very, very strong place. I've come to fulfill those things. Verse 20, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Bummer. Because they do it all right. The whole point of being a scribe and a Pharisee is to keep every single thing to get it all right, right? I mean, that's how they live their lives. When the Pharisee stands up in front, of, in front of the temple and says, Lord, I thank you that I'm not like this sinner, he's actually right. Like, if you're talking about self-righteousness here, self-righteousness, yeah, Pharisees have it in spades. But Jesus then takes righteousness and he redefines it. He takes righteousness and he redefines it. Part D on your sheet Two threes on the law. Right, the next section, the next part of the chiasm is Jesus speaks two sets of three. He talks about murder, adultery, and divorce. Right, those are three things that the law of Moses actually talks about. And he talks about then about oaths, retribution, and enemies, which are three things that the Pharisees made up their own laws about, about how you engage these things. Look at what Jesus does. Up in the top right-hand corner, this will be up here where it says rewriting the law. Jesus is a rabbi, right? I told you, this, told you folks last week about this, that when a rabbi, when you follow a rabbi, you take upon him, you take upon yourself his interpretation of the Torah. And so when that rabbi says, I interpret this part of the Torah like this, then you follow what it is that he says. If that rabbi dies or it becomes a heretic or whatever and you start following another rabbi, that rabbi will teach you his yoke by saying, you have heard it said this, this, and this, but I say unto you this, this, and this. And that's exactly what Jesus does here in all six of these things. He rewrites the concept of righteousness. The law and the prophets, I fulfill them. The law and the prophets are righteousness. I'm righteousness fulfilled. Now I'm telling you what true righteousness is. Not the righteousness of the Pharisees and the scribes because your righteousness needs to exceed their righteousness. Jesus, how can I do that? Well, you misunderstand righteousness. You misunderstand what's right. Being right before God is not keeping all the rules. Being right before God is engaging God's heart, knowing God intimately and living from that spot. So I'm telling you that you've heard it said that you shouldn't murder, but if you hate someone, then you've already killed them. You've heard it said that you shouldn't sleep with someone else's wife. But I'm telling you that if you look after a woman to possess some part of her for yourself and to gain pleasure from her wrongly, then you've already committed adultery in your heart with her. Right? Jesus is rewriting the 
basics of what they understand God to be about. Moses said that we could put our wives away if we get a certificate of divorce. What do you think about that? Jesus says, just avoid divorce. Just don't go there. Right? And then, when it comes to the laws they made up, you know, I mean, this is the Pharisees are walking around. They're, they're making oaths to everything. You know, I swear by this. I swear by that. I will not do this on this day. I will not talk to this person in this way. I will not look at a Roman in the eye for the next six weeks. I mean, these are real things. I make an oath here. I make an oath there. Jesus says, keep your mouth shut. Stop walking around making meaningless oaths everywhere you go. Let your yes be yes. Let your no be no. Stop going out there in public and acting like you know everything because you don't. So shut up, say yes, say no, be yourself. Romans had every right, the Roman particularly soldiers had every right to come up to you and be like, oh, hey, you're a Jew, you're under our rule, I'm tired of carrying this. You, you're going to carry this for me. How far do we have to go? We have to go a mile. You make it a mile, you lousy, horrible Jew. Yes. Jesus says, when that guy says to you, carry my pack, how far do we have to go? A mile. Let's take the long way. Let's make it two. It's a beautiful day. Jesus says, you've heard it said that you should hate Rome. You should hate these people. In fact, there are some Jews who are actually, they they sort of like being under Roman rule because they've gotten themselves in with the right friends. Those people, if a Jew is friendly toward Rome, like that Jesus, one of his followers is a tax collector. I mean, is there a closer friend to Rome than somebody that takes our money to give it to them? So not only should you hate Rome, but feel free to hate anybody that's connected to Rome or that's on any level on that. Jesus says, you've heard it said to hate your enemies. I'm telling you to love your enemies. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees. I mean, now Jesus is getting, I mean, now he's putting the rubber to the road. Like, whoa, whoa, Jesus, calm down. Verse 48, chapter five. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. You see that? You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. I don't know about you, but I've heard this preached sometimes where it's sort of like, uh, um, like this, is a, this is a standard that you should hope to attain. You'll never get there, but it's good to keep in front of you. Um, and maybe at some point, you know, um, you'll be released from this body, and then you'll able to be able to be absolutely perfect. No, I think that Jesus is dead serious here. Unless you are perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect, right, then, then you won't understand what it means to be in the kingdom of God. Jesus is not talking about perfection as far as like moral perfection. He is talking about completeness, wholeness. God is whole. God is perfectly at, at peace, satisfied with himself. His righteousness is given to you in Christ. And when you walk in the righteousness that is the righteousness of Christ, then you too experience the perfection that is God, the wholeness, the completion that is God. You don't become God, but you get to experience his rest. It's given to you. How does this happen? This happens by you stopping listening 
to your law or the law of the religion that you've bought into or whatever it might be and starting to pursue Jesus and his righteousness. And then it's sort of like, all right, man, this guy is really a different kind of a rabbi. You've heard it said, but I say to you, six times. While we're at it, let me just go after the core of what it means for you to be a follower of Yahweh. Chapter 6, threes, three things. And as you can see in your chiasm, E stands on its own. Right? Jesus is coming out of two sets of three in chapter 5, but E stands on its own, which means what? What is E? E is the main point. Now Jesus, being the artful teacher that he is, breaks down E, chapter 6, into three. Jesus is big on threes, loves threes. I wonder why, you know? Uh, big on threes. And he goes after the core of who they are. Right? If you were to break down what does it mean for me to practice Judaism, this is what you do, right? You, you fast, you pray, and you give. Right? Fast, pray, and give. You do those three things, you can be a good Jew. Jesus offers three third places. Right? He goes to the core of what it means for them to practice who it is that they say that they are. When you give, that's the first one, right? Yeah. When you give, don't give like you do. And if you look at the text in chapter 6, he gives a comparison to the religious leaders. So don't give like you do. Don't give like the Pharisees do, who stand in front and jingle all their stuff. You know, it would be like us putting the offering baskets down here and everybody walking up to put them in. And some of you going, 1500 bucks, 1500 bucks in this check, folks. Thank you, Lord, for giving me this $1,500 so that I could be faithful to your kingdom and your church, and I love these people so much. Here's my money. Or converting 1500 bucks into 1500 quarters and carrying that in and jingling it as you walk up here. I tell you, if somebody wanted to do that, I wouldn't mind that. That'd be fun to see. Um, don't give like you give. Don't give like the Pharisees give. Give like this. A third place, Jesus starts setting out for them. The way you practice giving would be wrong. The way the pract- that the Pharisees practice giving is clearly wrong. When you give, give like this. When you pray, don't pray out of yourself. But don't pray like the Pharisees pray either. Pray like this. When you fast, don't fast like you would fast. Don't fast like the Pharisees fast, who walk around in their worst clothes and who look just so pained in their face. Oh, sir, are you okay? What's wrong? Yes, I'm okay. I'm on my third day of fasting. Smell my breath. <sighs> if you've ever fasted, you know what I'm talking about. Your breath stinks by the third day. And you should, like, breath mints are okay to eat if you're fasting, in case you wanted to know. Three threes. Three third places. E1 Right? Giving parallels E1, fasting. E2 sticks out. Right? E2 is longer, it's significantly longer, and it breaks itself down into yet another three, which is Jesus. Right? Verse 
5. When you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray to the synagogue, in the synagogues and the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room, shut the door, pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. When you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this. Here comes the three. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we've forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Right? Those are three parallels. Those are three sub, the second half of that. Right? The daily bread, the debts and forgiveness, and the temptation, deliverance from evil. Those are three parallels to the first three things, which is actually the emphasis because the emphasis will always be on God. Right? So you can see as the chiasm works itself out, Jesus is building this thing where the first phrase and the third phrase, hallowed be your name, your will be done, parallel one another. Right? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. And the point of the entire sermon is this three-word phrase in Matthew 6. Your kingdom come. And back to the parallel. Your will be done. How? On earth, as it is in heaven. For who? Our Father, who is in heaven. Now, Jesus is building this whole thing to this one singular phrase. Your kingdom come. The natural thing for a Western person to do is to be like, okay, Jesus, cool. Tell us what that is. And if Jesus would hear, be, were here, he'd be like, I have been. What do you think 5-1 through 6-10 has been? That's it. That's it. Your kingdom come. What's your kingdom, Jesus? No, no Jew would ever have asked that because they know to think like this. Right? It's only us Westerners that are like, please, God, speak to me in an outline, right? Roman numeral one, A, B, C. Roman numeral two, A, B, C. Quote a poem, sing a song, go home. Now that's something I can work with. Linear thought, you know, not this like chiasm kind of a thing. Man, but this is so much more beautiful than we think. Right, with Jesus lining out for it. That's why Jesus says, I think, like when, when the kingdom of God's among you, you're going to see that it's there. It's not going to be like, boom, here it is. Here's a linear train of thought. Everybody hop on the train. Off we go to Never Never Land. No, the kingdom of God is among you. It's here. Jesus, what is the kingdom? He's telling you what the kingdom is. The kingdom is don't murder by hating someone. The kingdom is don't commit adultery by lusting after someone. The kingdom is stay faithful in your marriages. The kingdom is watch how you talk. The kingdom is, is, is do above and beyond what someone asks you when you're asked to serve. The kingdom is not thinking about God like you would or like the religious leaders want you to, but thinking about God like God wants you to, giving to God like God wants you to, praying to God like God wants you to. I'm telling you what the kingdom is. The kingdom is here. It is among you. I'm explaining it to you. When you and I as people desire to live in the kingdom, we are to be about binding and loosing. What should we be binding and loosing? We should be binding and loosing this, the Sermon on the Mount. This is it. This is the thing. This is the government. This is the, this is the idea. 
Receive this. Walk in this. Bind it to yourself. Right? Release it. Loose it into and on those around you. Give grace and love. Right? Give comfort to those who mourn because you want to see them be blessed. Make peace in the place of conflict because you want to see the kingdom of God come there. Be meek toward those around you and so inherit the earth. This is the kingdom. This is what it means for us to live in the kingdom of God. Think with God according to his third places. And then the chiasm keeps going, right? D parallels D. Jesus has previously given two threes about the law. He now gives two sets of threes about the heart of God. Jesus comes to fulfill the law, but even more than that, Jesus wants you to know that God's heart is for you. And so in the middle of chapter 6, he gives us three examples. God's heart versus money, God's heart versus anxiety, and then at the beginning of chapter 7, God's heart versus hypocrisy, which they see in spades because they're led by the Pharisees and the scribes, who Jesus over and over calls hypocrites. That's right. So Jesus says, don't worship money. You can't serve God and mammon. You don't need to because God's heart is for you and God will provide what you need. Don't live your life in anxiety. Don't live your life in despair. Don't live your life always tense and without the shalom of God in your heart. Receive the shalom of God. God gives shalom to the sparrows. Do they look like they're freaking out? Right? Do the foxes complain about their hole? No? Does God care about them? God will care about you. God will care about you. But Jesus, what if God doesn't, what if I don't see that in my life? Well, then you need to seek God's kingdom first. And then all this stuff I've been talking about, it'll be given to you. If you're not seeing God, listen to me. If you don't hear anything else I hear, I say today, hear this. If you're not seeing God's kingdom, it's not because God's kingdom's not around you. It's because you're not seeking it. It's there. It's there. The kingdom of God is among you. It is in your midst. And if you're living your life without joy, don't look at the people around you and say, why aren't you giving me joy? If you're living your life without wholeness and shalom, don't look at the people around you and be like, come on now, step up, step up. Help me out here. Give me what I need. No, those things come through the kingdom of God. And if you seek first his kingdom, then all of these things will be added unto you. If you seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, which he's been explaining to us for two chapters now, all of this stuff will be given. All the things that you think that you're lacking, that you're looking for in the wrong spot. And you'll receive the kingdom. And at some point, in hindsight, you'll be like, whoa. It won't, be, it, won't be, it won't just be dropped on you. Like, boom, here it is. Here's the kingdom of God. Ah! Now it'll be sort of like, whoa, my life is different. I'm a transformed person. The kingdom of God is upon me. The kingdom of God is in me. The kingdom of God has begun to show up in my home in a way that it was not before. The kingdom of God, I don't feel anxiety now when I drive to work because I hate my boss. My boss is always asking me to go an extra mile, and I always do it dragging my feet and calling him a jerk. Well, yeah, work's going to feel heavy if you're living like that. But you're not seeking the kingdom of God at your workplace. Right? You know, if you go to school, and a teacher has it out for you, we've all got those situations in our life, which, by the way, in hindsight, I don't think Miss Russell had it out for me. I do think that I might have given her a really hard time. <laughs> but, but I was not seeking at all the kingdom of God in my classroom. But students, you can. Right? In your friendships, 
In your friendships, there's no reason why your friendship has to be a vacuous place of fear where you live contracted to another person where you give me this, I'll give you this, and then we leave each other, sort of, we leave those core parts sort of off to the edges. Like you can seek the kingdom of God in your friendships. Seek first the kingdom, and all of these things will be given to you. I'll tell you what, though. Jesus really makes a big statement in chapter 7, verse 12. His, the parallel to fulfill the law and the prophets and have greater righteousness is the golden rule, which is a horrible word for a really good verse. So stop saying the golden rule and start saying Matthew seven twelve, right? Just do that in your life, like especially with people that don't know Jesus. It's fun. Um, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Jesus is just simply stating, love your neighbor as you love yourself a different way. Now, perchance, you've heard Jesus teach Matthew 5, 1 through seven twelve, and you're like, eh, I don't think so. That's kingdom, that's not for me. Well, okay, but you are taking some serious risks. Well, Jay, what kind of risks am I taking? Oh, wait, you know, oh, man. I did that thing where my head works faster or my mouth works faster than my head does. I forgot the second three. Can I go back to that? Can, you, can we go back to that second three? Because it's just like God's heart for his kids in this is so strong. Just prior to Matthew seven twelve, the anti-golden rule uh, phrase, um, the ask and receive, seek and find, knock and it will be open. That's Jesus' second three that he parallels. Like, man, what a gift. Do you realize what a gift that is? Trust me, you don't. You know how? Because I don't and we don't. Like ask and receive, seek and knock. Seek and find, right? Knock and it will open. This is your father's heart for you. This is your father's heart. You want to know God? Ask. You want shalom? Knock. You want to see the kingdom in your life? Seek. If you seek, you will find. If you ask, if you ask, it will be given. If you knock on the door, it will be opened to you. This is the heart of your God. He is for you. The kingdom of God is for you. It is a gift to you. It is yours. So if you don't want to live in God's government, it's your choice, but it's going to be rough. Right? Which is B, again, in the bottom of the page, warnings against not living in God's government. Um, they're, not, they're not fun. Uh, enter by the narrow gate. Narrow gate and the wide gate. Then you have the tree. Like, watch out for the trees that bear bad fruit. A healthy tree can't bear bad fruit. Stay away from those things. But if you're not going to be out the kingdom, then you're going to bear bad fruit. If you're not going to be out the kingdom, then you are going to be on the broad road to destruction. And you might have a lot of fun getting there, but man, it's going to be rough when destruction finds you. And don't think that means hell. Destruction can destroy someone in various creative ways. There are a lot of destroyed people who look like they're having a great time. Don't be deceived. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Right? But Lord, I, didn't I prophesy in your name? Didn't I do all this stuff? Didn't I stand up in the temple and prophesy? Didn't I give and didn't I fast and didn't I pray? Depart from me. I never knew you. You never came in to my kingdom. You never sought. You sought righteousness for yourself. You sought self-righteousness. Where do you be seeking God's righteousness? Seek first his kingdom. Build your house on the rock. If you don't, your house will get flattened. 
To build your house on the sand is to be destroyed. So Jesus gives his government. He seals it with a love your neighbor as you love yourself and warns you like decisively and strongly about what will happen if you don't give yourself to his government. It will lead you to destruction. Your house will fall. It will, it will not go well with you. And then Jesus descends from the mountain, surrounded by crowds. It's a chiasm. It works itself out just perfectly. And the central point is your kingdom come. Now, when it comes to the kingdom of God and Matthew chapter 5, verse 7, we tend to think of Matthew 5, 7. DJ, you and your team, come back up, please. We tend to think of Matthew 5, 7 as um, a moral and ethical way to live our lives. How do I be a good person? You should read the Sermon on the Mount. What does it mean for me to live in a way that, that pleases? How do I make decisions about how to live my life? Well, the Sermon on the Mount can guide a lot of those things for you. Here's your morality, right? Here's your ethics. Here's the way that you live your life. This is how to be a good person, right? That completely shortchanges what the Sermon on the Mount is meant to be. It weaves itself into this central phrase of your kingdom come. Back when I was teaching on sonship in February, I went to this, uh, th- this, this painting, this picture of Peter walking on the water. The big idea from that sermon was, was that when Jesus calls to Peter to come and join him on the water, no one is lacking faith that, P- that Jesus can walk on the water. Jesus is calling Peter to be like him. Peter does not define himself as a water walker. Jesus says, by faith, you are a water walker. So come out here and walk on the water. Who has faith in who? Peter doesn't need, Jesus doesn't need Peter to have faith in him that he can walk on the water. Jesus is walking on the water. Jesus has faith in Peter that Peter can be like him and walk on the water. When Jesus says, come, it is not a test. It is an invitation. Did you catch that? When Jesus says to Peter, come and walk on the water, it is not a test. It is an invitation. It is a come and be with me where I am. But Jesus, I can't. I can't walk on water. No human can walk on water. You're exactly right, but you're not human anymore. You are more. Right? You're not human in the way that those around you are human. (laughs) You're not human like you would be human. You're not human like fallen humanity around you. You are a redeemed son of God. You are the bride of Christ. You have taken hold of Jesus and the kingdom of God by faith. So walk by faith and be who you are. Jesus, who am I? You're a mourner who is blessed and comforted. You are a peacemaker who receives the kingdom of God. You are a meek man who understands that meekness is strength and receives the inheritance of the kingdom. Right? You are someone who looks at the kingdom of God around you and who says that I want to engage that, but I'm going to have to think differently. And so my heart that's filled with hate, I now see that as being the same thing as walking up and shooting Ted in the face. Yeah, which I wouldn't do, Ted. I want the kingdom. For both me and you, um, right? Because it's murder. It's murder. I'm trying to destroy the image of God in Ted, right? 
It means that I treat the women around me with dignity and honor and respect, not as personal possessions. It means that my wife is my priority and my marriage is what I invest in. It means that I, it means that I walk around and understand that the words that come out of my mouth mean something. So I'm not just walking around talking willy-nilly. I'm saying things that matter. I'm saying yes, I'm saying no, and I'm letting my sp- I mean what I say and say what I mean. There I am. I'm forgiving, I'm, I'm binding, I'm loosing, I'm walking in the kingdom. I'm fasting like God would have me fast, not like I want to fast or like my religious system has taught me to fast. I, I'm praying, your kingdom come. It is all these things. When Jesus gives the Sermon on the Mount, it's not a pipe dream and it's not a morality test. It's not a, this is how you be a good person. Please, God, let it be more than that. The world thinks of Jesus' teachings, that Jesus is a good teacher wrapped up in the Sermon on the Mount. Like, this is a good thing for you to do. That's ridiculous. This is a stupid way to live life if the kingdom of God's not real. If the kingdom of God's not real, you should be selfish. You should be in the survival of the fittest. You should be looking out for number one because, man, it is a cutthroat world out there. But you don't have to be because that cutthroat world is where the kingdom of darkness reigns. And you are not from the kingdom of darkness. You are from the kingdom of God which means that your way is his way. You seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, his blessing, his goodness, his ways. Those things will be given to you and you will walk in the victory that is a son of God. So that our king that looks completely a bit nonsensical, riding into Jerusalem on a donkey with a bunch of like B-teamers throwing their coats and palm branches, now that's somebody we can get behind. Because when the crowd says, he's a prophet, we say, no, no, no. Didn't you hear what Peter said? Jesus is the Messiah. He's the son of the living God. He is going to set up his people, and the gates of hell will try and destroy them, and it, they, they won't even come close to prevailing because Jesus has conquered them. And he has empowered and invested his authority in his children to walk around this world in the midst of the kingdom of darkness and enact a better government, a better way, inviting people who are entrapped and enslaved and oppressed by the kingdom of darkness to a better way of life, to a better kingdom, right? Where there is joy and peace and wholeness, where you are with God and God is with you and there is peace. Why is there peace? Because he's the prince of peace and he wins. And his love always wins. And that is the beauty of what it means to be a son of God in the kingdom of God. So when you leave today, go be you. God, we bless you. We worship you. Thank you for what you have given us in Christ and the wonder of your kingdom and your majesty and your beauty and your greatness. Lead us deeply into what it means to be in your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. God, lead us deeply into the presence of your kingdom, into the government of your kingdom, 
and to you, our Prince of Peace, our King. Grant to us, God, the wholeness, the shalom, the beauty, the wonder that is you, the way that is everlasting. Open our hearts, God, to you. Open our hearts to your ways, to your mind, to your goodness, to your truth. Unveil our eyes, God. Yeah, I just see God just moving around this room and peeling scales off people's eyes. Yeah, receive that. Receive. If God's trying to peel scales off your eyes, like stop resisting. Don't turn away. He's not shaming you. Like, let him be there with you and remove those scales from your eyes. You're seeing yourself wrong. Let him in. Like, I can see God like blowing into some of your ears. So that you can hear again. Or maybe for the first time. Or maybe you've heard before, but you just never listened. God's fitting you. He's equipping you to, to listen. He's healing your burst eardrums from the noise and the violent noise of the kingdom of darkness or the voices of shame. Yeah, God is healing today. God, we receive your healing. We receive your move among us. Come and unveil our eyes. God, come and blow through this place with your wind. Spirit of God, yes, come and heal us. Continue, Father, to walk us into what it means to be in your government, in your kingdom, in your life. Keep us from thinking about things our way or the way that our religion tells us, but to think about them with you, to feel about them with you, to be engaged in them with you for your life. So may you, my brothers and sisters, may you receive the healing of God today. Unveiled eyes, fresh ears, and may you be healed. May you leave from this place and go be who it is that you were made to be. Amen. Amen.